reading tonight is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 18. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have been fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Please be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you again this evening, and it's always a great privilege for me to to be with you, and I count it a great privilege for us to be together. And uh, I do hope that uh, if you're visiting with us, you'll come back and be with us whenever you possibly can. We started this morning a, a lesson on asleep in Jesus. And just to be honest with you, I had problems trying to find the right graphic to illustrate this sermon. And I still haven't found what I really wanted. And so I came up with this. And then uh, uh, Brother Wall asked me about... Uh, is that the right scripture? And really, he read the right scripture. I'm a little confused on this tonight. I couldn't tell whether to put up 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I use both of those today in our study of asleep in Jesus. And what the, thank you for reading that passage, though I probably was a little confusing in the matter. The point about asleep in Jesus is the statement that is made in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 through 8. And you and I examined that particular passage of Scripture, and we also went to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, where it talks about being asleep in Jesus. And the point that I was trying to develop from these passages is first to understand what that phrase means, asleep in Jesus. And I immediately thought of the fact that I cannot sleep in Jesus if I, am not, if I don't live in Jesus. And we studied very carefully what that means. To be in Christ is to obey the gospel of Christ. There's no way to emphasize how important faith is in the life of the Christian. There's no way to emphasize just how important faith must be. Hebrews 11 and 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You've got to have faith in God. Paul presents a tremendous discussion about faith in Romans chapter 4. And it continues on into Romans chapter 5. And Abraham was justified by an obedient faith. Romans chapter 1 verse 5. And verse 16, chapter 16 and 26. And so this great book of the Bible begins in faith. It ends with faith. It talks about faith. It talks about being justified by faith. There's no way you could overemphasize the importance of faith in the life of the Christian. You've got to have faith in order to be in Christ. And we studied that today. That means more than just have a mental assent. Okay, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That faith motivates me to obey Him. And without that obedience, I really don't have faith actualized. A mature type of faith, James chapter 2. And so I repent of my sins, Luke 13, 3, and I confess my faith before others, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And I'm baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins, Mark 16, verse 15 and 16. These are acts of faith. Doesn't mean that I've earned my salvation. But it means that I've received forgiveness of sin based on obedience to the will of Christ. It is a free gift. 
For the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift. And there's nothing I can do to earn it, but I must receive it properly. And receiving it properly means responding properly to the will of Christ. After all, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And without doing that, I really can't say that I love Jesus if I'm not willing to obey what Christ has told me to do. And only when I obey him and live for him and die in him can it be written on my stone, asleep in Jesus. A lot of those stones are misrepresentations. A lot of stones have asleep in Jesus written on them, but I wonder if that person really has and is asleep in Jesus. Make no mistake about it, when the Bible references the matter of being asleep, it's not talking about the soul sleeping. It is a figure of speech describing the decomposition of the body. The body looks as if it is asleep. And I think it's a very fitting application with regard to death. Because when I go to sleep at night, I fully expect to rise up the next day. And that's the way it is when we go to sleep in Jesus. We'll rise up on the great day of resurrection, John chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the passage we just read. When I go to sleep at night, my conscience is awake. It is alert. Sometimes I'm dreaming. Sometimes I remember those dreams. My subconscious self, that inner part of me, is still active and is aware of things. That's the way it is when the child of God, or anyone, child of God or not child of God, passes from this life. The soul continues to live and is aware. Luke chapter 16, a passage we studied already this morning. The point of the matter is, can it be said on your stone truly? This one's asleep in Jesus. Because they lived in Christ. And they lived for Christ every single day. I don't know how many cemeteries I've been to. I've been to, I don't know how many. I don't know how many funerals I've preached in my lifetime. I don't know. i preached funerals for young children. i preached funerals for older adults. And some of those people I know were very faithful children of God, and some of them were not. Some, it could be said on their stone, they are at rest. And we read this morning, Revelation 14, verse 13. And there they rest from their labors was the statement which... John was making about the revelation of Christ. But not everybody's at rest, are they? Luke chapter 16 made that very clear. Not everybody can be at rest. There was a rich man who fared sumptuously every day. But yet he opened up his eyes in torment. He was tormented by those flames. That's in store for every individual who's not faithful to the will of God and the word of God. There's torment that awaits them. I made a statement this morning as I reviewed just a brief moment here tonight, just how terrible that consequence must be. I don't know that I can fully wrap my mind around the overwhelming consequences of being lost eternally. I don't know that I can really understand that. Jesus spoke more about it than anyone in the pages of the New Testament because he knew, he understood, and he wants everyone to avoid going to that place. For God is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But a person who's never lived a faithful Christian life cannot be set on his tombstone at rest. That person's not at rest. 
There's continual torment throughout all eternity. An issue with regard to the matter of this matter of the Hadean world, and then ultimately at the time of judgment, God will condemn the wicked into everlasting condemnation. The Gehenna, which Bible writers refer to a number of times in the New Testament. Everlasting punishment. Matthew 25 and verse 46. Not everybody can have it said on their tombstone they are at rest. A lot of people have it on their tombstone, I suppose, but I just wonder if that's not a misrepresentation on the part of some. There are other tombstones, and I mentioned a little bit about that. This particular person, Dorcas, was full of good works. And it's written on her tombstone that she was full of good works. I don't know that Dorcas had a tombstone. Acts chapter 9 makes clear that Dorcas was a woman who continually was involved in being with people, working with people, helping people. We studied a little bit about that this morning. I'm beginning to pick up with my lesson for tonight. There she died, and as Peter came at the request of those widows who were there, mourning over her and weeping, they were showing Peter all the things that Dorcas had done, all the tunics, all the cloaks, the coats, the clothing that she has made. She was a seamstress. It's a wonderful thing that she was able to do. Her talent, she used it for God, and she used it for other people. She indeed was full of good works. And I'd like to pick up with that particular thought tonight. Can that be added to your tombstone, full of good works? Or if that were on your tombstone, would it be a misnomer? In Matthew chapter 25, the Bible talks about this particular matter. And there we might be thinking, well, what great thing can I do? I can't do anything special. I can't do anything that's notable. Well, I don't know that being a seamstress as Dorcas was, was such a, uh, an exceptional, remarkable thing. What she did was use her talent for the Lord. In Matthew chapter 25, you have this description of the ultimate accountability of all people. Jesus, in that instance, begins at about verse 31, and he says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then will he sit on his glorious throne. But that verse, verse 31, I'm in Matthew 25, has always been an interesting passage for me, for when Christ comes again, he's coming with his angels. Not just some of them, all of his angels. Those great spiritual beings that God created to do his bidding. I wish I knew more about that. I wish I knew more of them. And when you look at the angels of God and the angels in the New Testament and what he describes, their mission and their work, very powerful, purposeful in their mission, Matthew chapter 13, we see that heaven will be reft of all the angels and all the angels with him. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he'll separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 34. Jesus is saying when the world just began, the great scheme of redemption was put in place. When the world began, by the very foundation of the world, God was working out and developing a divine plan whereby righteous God and sinful man could be reconciled together once again. From the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? In verse 39, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you to the extent that you did it to one of the, these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 41. Now that's something, that list that I just read, is something all of us can do. It's not a matter of doing some great thing. If we want this to be accurate and placed on our tombstone full of good works, it's not a matter of us being able to perform some great mighty deed. But it is a matter of us being concerned about others. Indirectly, he says, you've done it unto me. As you've done it to these, your brethren, you've done it unto me. This is something we all can all do. The feeding, the drinking, the inviting in, the helping of those who are actually in need. And so I thought, well, what will help me try to motivate myself and to mold my life into one that is full of good works, like Dorcas. One thing that would motivate me, remember all the blessing God has done for me. And when I think along these lines, I naturally think of a psalm, Psalm 103. And I think it's a wonderful passage that helps me in this regard to remember what God's done for me, and I turn to it for a brief comment. This particular psalm has a wonderful symmetry about it. He first talks about blessings God has shown him personally, verses 1 through 5. And then he talks about blessings that God has given to Israel, verses 6 through 14. And then he progresses from that point into blessings that God has shown all mankind, verses 15 through 22. But I won't examine all the aspects of this particular psalm tonight. I'll just look at the first few verses, the first paragraph, verses 1 through 5. And I went to Psalm 103 because it'll help me motivate my life to be a life of good works and helping other people who are in need. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Verse 2. If I can just keep that in my mind, if I can remember, look what God has done for me, and not forget the things that He has done for me, it'll help me and motivate me to fill my life with good works. So that can truly be said on my stone. This one lived a life full of good works. Like Dorcas in the pages of the Bible who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, verse 4, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Do you notice not only the list of blessings there, but also the quality of those blessings? 
Not only does he give us a listing of blessings that he's thankful to God about for him personally, but he gives us something of the quality of the blessings that God has given. Who pardons all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion? He doesn't just give you loving compassion and kindness. He crowns you with it. Who satisfies your years with good things? It's beyond human description to help us understand it all. So that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Expositors look upon that passage and say, well, as the eagle molts and it has new feathers that come upon it, so is the years of our life that he gives us strength. And even though Paul would say our outward man is decaying day by day, our inward man is being renewed and is being strengthened. Look at the blessings that God has given us. It will help me. It will motivate me to be a life full of good works for people who need not to heap it upon myself, to be thankful. But you know what we do sometimes? We forget. We forget what God has done. You know, the butler forgot Joseph. Joseph gave the butler a good turn, and he forgot him. And you know about those ten lepers? Nine of them forgot the Lord. And they stood outside the gate. And Jesus said, go present yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were healed miraculously of their leprosy. But nine forgot, and one came back and thanked the Lord and was grateful and praising God because of it. And he said, weren't there ten lepers here? Where are the nine? That's the way we are many times. We forget. And we need to be reminded of the wonderful things that God has given us. The life, the health, the family, the friends the houses in which we live, the food we eat, the cars we drive, and the list goes on and on and on of the many blessings that God has given us. And if we could remember that, it'll help motivate us to have a life full of good works toward others rather than thinking about themselves. The second thing I think that helps me, and I hope it helps you, to be a person that is motivated to be full of good works for the Lord. And that is try not to major in your troubles. Try not to focus on your problems. Try to get out of that and to think about others and to think about doing that rather than thinking about yourself. Because if you're really honest, when you're depressed and you're feeling bad and you're feeling down, isn't it really because you're thinking so much about yourself rather than others? And I'm thinking so much about myself that now I feel bad and I'm down. Maybe we need a good dose of thinking about other people and being concerned about others more than we're concerned about ourselves. The Bible emphasizes that important matter for us. The point that I'm trying to make is let us not major in our troubles. Do we have? We've got them. You got problems? Who here tonight has never had a problem? Raise your hand. I'd like to meet you and shake your hand. Every one of us have got problems. Every one of us will have problems. But we will not major in our problems. But we do, don't we? What we do is we'll, we even measure time by that. Well, that was the year I had the bad fever. Or that was the year I remember I had the flu so bad. Well, that was the year of the tornado. 
That was the year the house blew away. I won't forget that. Because we major in our troubles. Why don't we think of it this way? That was the year so-and-so obeyed the gospel. That was the year that we added on to the church building. That was the year when we started that new mission work. And we tell time by the good things that have happened rather than major in the troubles and the problems that we face day in and day out. It will help motivate me to be a person full of good works. And that's what I really am trying to think about. And I'll tell you something else. Remember how terrible it is to be ungrateful. It's terrible. Second Timothy chapter 3 talks a little bit about that. Timothy warns about the matter of a time that's coming when people will be self-centered and preoccupied with themselves and they will be unthankful. And he says this is a terrible time. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Perhaps it would be good for us to read it. But realize this, verse 1, that in the last days difficult times will come. The last days, I think everyone has agreed, is the idea of the, the last dispensation, the Christian dispensation in which we now live. The last dispensation, the last economy of time that God is going to be dealing with man, and that's where we are now. And what will it be like? For men will be lovers of self, you know, preoccupied with their own selves. Lovers of money, devoted to materialism, boastful. They are so proud of their accomplishments, arrogant, so, think, so thinking of themselves that they are the ones that deserve all the credit, no one else. Revilers. Now, there's your slanderous type of person, the gossip who wants to revile others and talk badly about others. Disobedient to parents, disrespectful to authority, you see. Troublesome times. And then he says, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of God. Verse 4, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now I read rather quickly through that rather lengthy list of sinful attitudes and actions that the Bible is condemning, but I want you to notice couched in the middle of that, the ungrateful. We need to learn just how bad that is. And you can say, well, <clears throat> I can understand how revilers and disobedient to parents and unholy and boastful and arrogant, that's, those are bad. And indeed they are. I'm not taking anything away from them, but so also is this matter of being ungrateful. If I can learn to be thankful, and learn to realize what God has given me, there in turn I can come to having a life that is full of good works. You see, it's not so much concerned about myself. And then one other I wanted to talk about, and that is this passage in Revelation 14, 13 that I mentioned a moment ago. There's another tombstone statement that's sometimes given, and as you walk through a cemetery, you're going to find it. And this particular statement comes with the matter of their works to follow them. So let's go to Revelation chapter 14, and let me read what I'm referencing for the present. I like to talk about the book of Revelation. It's one of my favorite books of the New Testament, one of my favorite books of the Bible. Though often we shy away from it, and it's a sad thing. 
because there's a treasure trove of information and spiritual help and found in these pages. It is the great revelation of Jesus Christ recorded for us by John the Apostle on the island of Patmos that would have been late in the first century, coming to the close of that particular period of time, a time in which the church faced severe persecution and suffering, and it is a book that's written to help them and encourage them, encourage them and help them realize that God's people overcome because of Christ. By chapter 13, you have the beast of the land. He's a horrible-looking creature. I think most expositors would look upon the beast of the land as some kind of political type of system, however you want to interpret the symbols along that particular line. I have very strong feelings about that, but at the same time, we have to be somewhat lenient in the matter of interpreting these symbols because it's not the clearest thing in the world as we reach this portion of the Bible, sometimes referred to as apocalyptic material. Then about the middle of chapter 13, there's a beast of the sea. He says in verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Another there has reference to another of the same kind. You have the beast of the sea, you have the beast of the land, which I think most people recognize as being false religions. You have the political world dominated by wickedness, and you have the spiritual world dominated by wickedness in their, in, time, in their day and time by means of false religion. And Satan is using everything that he can to thwart the purpose of God and to destroy the people of God. But then you come to chapter 14, which is where we're working into our discussion of verse 13 of this chapter. And you have this great vision of the 144,000 worshiping God. I don't believe it's a literal 144,000. I don't think it's limited to that at all. I think it's a great body of people, a number of which cannot be numbered or counted, that are worshiping and praising God. And three angels come. And they give messages to the church and give messages to the people of God. And it's the third angel that gives this particular message of giving worship to God. And he comes down to verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. And that's what I want to understand. And I've seen that on tombstones. I've seen that written on stones. Their deeds follow them. Their works do follow them. And that's the description that's made here. Their works follow them. wonder what he means by that. Their works follow them. Now we use Revelation 14, 13 as a matter of discussion as those who were faithful in Christ who rest from their labors. But now we use Revelation 14, 13 for another expression that's found on many tombstones and that is their deeds do follow them. But I think I understand what he's getting at in this matter of the deeds following them when I read Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 you read about Cain and Abel and you read about many faithful children of God, men and women who had such conviction that they did what God told them to do. You look at verse 4. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. You'll remember about Cain and Abel. God had told Cain and Abel about sacrifice, about the proper way to worship, and in this particular passage, he says that he offered a sacrifice by faith. 
And there in turn God respected Abel's sacrifice, but Cain's was rejected because he offered to of the fruit of the land. God didn't authorize that type of sacrifice. And God didn't accept that worship. He accepted Abel's worship, but he didn't accept Cain's worship. And you read that in the early portions of the book of Genesis. There we see from that particular instance that Cain killed his brother because he was filled with such envy and jealousy and hate over the fact that his worship was not accepted by God. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews 11 verse 4 says, By faith, he offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. He being dead, yet speaks. How is it that he speaks? He speaks by the life which he lived. He tells future generations what he did. He tells future generations he followed the word of God by faith. It wasn't just a matter of him saying, I believe that God is true and that God's word is right and that I ought to follow him. He did it. By faith, he offered. And it's an action word here. He went out and he did what God told him to do. He just didn't sit back and say, okay, I believe it, but he acted upon it and it was counted to him for righteousness. And he being dead yet speaks. Their works do follow them. The lives that they lived continued to influence future generations. And so it is with these who die in the Lord, Revelation 14 and 13, their deeds, their works do follow them. They're examples to future generations who come along and who are following and looking in their steps. They are still leading people even though they're dead and they passed on. Their works do follow them. Everybody has thrown a pebble into a pond. And when you throw the pebble in the pond, the ripples continue to go out toward the side of the bank. That's the way it is with life. People influence other people. You might be surprised all the people you influence every single day. And then when you're gone, they're going to remember the kind of life that you live. They're going to remember the kind of person that you were. And they're going to reflect on the kind of life that you lived and how you led them. You know, the soil, very productive. And when you plant, it'll produce. And it really doesn't matter what you plant. You could plant tomato plant, it'd be very productive. Or you can plant a nightshade. Nightshade's a type of plant that's poisonous. Tomato plant's kind of related to the nightshade. One, is very fruitful. The other is poisonous. Now the earth is indiscriminate with regard to what is planted. If a wonderful plant like the tomato plant is planted and grows, it produces fruit, but it'll also produce poison. It depends on what you plant. And that's the way it is with our lives. It depends on the kind of life that we are going to live. I've seen on tombstones the idea their works do follow them. It may be good works, it may be bad works. It depends on the kind of life that we live, how we consider these particular matters, how we live it before others, the example that we were giving other people. Parents give examples to their children. Grandparents give examples to grandchildren. We all give examples to other people. And we find ourselves following the examples of others. 
if we're not careful, we'll act like them, talk like them, think like them, and we have to be very sure, very careful that what we're planning is something that is fruitful and not poisonous to others. Let us lead people in the pathway of righteousness so that our works do follow us in a wonderful way that blesses other people. Maybe we ought to look at this a little further. Study with me for a moment Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is the parallel to Matthew chapter 16. And often when I think about this incident which took place at the seacoast of Caesarea Philippi, I often go to Matthew chapter 16, but tonight I think I'll go to Luke chapter 9. And beginning at about verse 18, you'll recognize the context. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? You know, what are they saying about me? Now, I never thought that Jesus asked this for his benefit. I never thought Jesus was asking this question to find out by popular poll how he's doing. That wasn't the issue. He asked the question for the disciples' benefit. Who do people say that I am? You know, just like God asked the question in the garden, Adam, where art thou? I never thought that God was asking that question for his benefit. He knew where Adam was. He knew Adam was hiding because of sin, but he asked the question for Adam's benefit. And so it is with the disciples here. He asked the question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What are they saying about me? Now, often people will be mistaken with regard to the answer. They'll not really understand. They answered and said, verse 19, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And then... That's often the way people are. They won't get the right idea about who we are. That's often true. Some thought he was John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he doesn't leave it there, does he? He goes to verse 20, and he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Verse 20. You see, Jesus is not going to leave it like that. He's not going to leave it on the basis of what other people are saying about him. He's going to bring it down to what we are saying about him. And he's saying to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter typically in an impetuous type of way says, probably the greatest thing that anybody can ever say, you are the Christ of God. Now, I said this particular matter is parallel for us in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 17. It all comes down to a matter of individual faith. How are we living the Christian life before other people? It's simply not enough for what others are saying. What position am I going to take? What kind of work am I going to leave behind me? But the incident doesn't stop there. He says in verse 21, But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Verse 22. Now when you study Matthew chapter 16, it's very clear they didn't understand what that meant. And he's not asking now 
who do they say I am? He's not asking now, who do you say I am? He's telling them now who he is. And that's hard for them to understand. He's telling them, I'm the Messiah. And I'm going to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. Bringing about salvation, making it possible for everyone. You know, I know who the president is. It's President Donald Trump. But I really don't know what the presidency is about. Oh, I know that decisions are made that affect millions of Americans every single day. And that he is, has such a position that he affects a lot of people. But I really don't relate to that particular matter. It's the presidency. I know who the president is, but I really don't know what the presidency is about. Only he would know that. Very few men would really come to understand what that office of work really entails. And Jesus is telling us, you really don't understand what it is to be the Messiah, but I'm going to define it for you. I'm going to explain it to you. The Messiah is the one who came and lived his life for other people and be raised from the dead so that they can have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. It's a work for others. That's the Messiahship of Christ. God came and died for us so that we could receive forgiveness. And when we faithfully respond to him properly, we receive forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life in the after a while. His work follows him. He is full of good works. And he still leads with regard to the work of his life. Now I want that written on my tombstone. His work follows him. Can I so live my life that I can say I am asleep in Jesus? Only if I'm in Jesus in life. Can I so rest from my labors? Only if I'm one who's actually labored for the Lord and for others. Can it be said of my stone that he was full of good works? <clears throat> Only if I apply my heart and my hand to doing what God has told me to do in helping others. Can it be said, their works do follow them, if and only if we devote ourselves to leading others to Jesus Christ and to come to understand His divine will for our lives. Now the question is, what will they put on your stone? Loving Father, Faithful spouse, dedicated Christian, faithful member of the church, the one who devoted himself to other people, wonderful father, what shall it say? Will it be true? We can only make that happen by living the kind of life that God would have us to live. Now, if I'm speaking to anyone tonight who's never obeyed the gospel, I'm sure you see by now how important that is. That you too have the obligation, as we all do, 
to repent of our sins and confess our faith. And to be baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins. Acts 2 verse 38. To be added to the church of the Lord. I read a passage tonight, Matthew chapter 25. Ultimate accountability. Afterlife liability. Whereby people are held accountable for the lives that they live here and now. Are you ready for that day of judgment? The day when all the holy angels will come from heaven. And there will be the great judgment before God. We must all prepare for that. So that when the day does come that we depart from this life, what they put on that stone will be accurate with regard to our life. If you're not a child of God tonight, I pray you'll become one. And if you've been unfaithful, I pray you'll turn from that and become faithful tonight. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.